waiting for him to turn on the machine for the recording device. Are we ready yet? Well, good to see all you brave-hearted men here. What's going to be interesting this morning, since 150 or 60, whatever it is, maybe a larger number than that, of the ladies of our church are across the lake, it's going to be interesting to see how many of the men come who normally come and will be able to do this without their wives. I think it's going to be very telling how much the men of the church depend on their women, right? Even though they may not think so. You know, getting up and, okay, what tie will I wear? Uh, what will I eat for breakfast? Uh, you know, how do I do this and that? It's amazing, those of who are married, and especially been married for any length of time, how much we depend on our ladies. And I, I may repeat this in the sermon this morning, <clears throat> but let's take, even though I'm on tape, the opportunity to let them know, Right? Let's take the opportunity to let them know. So thanks for being here this morning as we continue in our study of Colossians. This morning we're, as I turn my pages together, we're in the last couple of verses in chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2. So let's read together these verses. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, and then chapter 2, verse 1. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Father, once again, Father, we are the most privileged people on the earth. Because, Father, you have opened the revelation, the knowledge, relationship, and fellowship with yourself to us by the Spirit through your word. So, Father, again this morning, we had the highest privilege of sitting down with you at your table as we are served by the Holy Spirit, who is the helper, our comforter, as he serves us the very bread of life. Father, we pray that we will be partaking of this bread of life, receiving it, believing it, obeying it. Father, so that what you purpose in your word will become a living word in us. Father, so that the, when the world sees us, they are seeing men and women who have been transformed and are being transformed into people that they don't understand, that they cannot figure out, but people whose lives are a compelling example that there is a God 
who reigns and rules and will return. Father, minister to us this morning. We know you will, but we always ask according to your will. And we thank you, Father. Even before we receive, we thank you because we will receive according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is continuing in his instruction to the church concerning remember the prayer that he has prayed in chapter 1 verse 9 remember what he said I pray what that you be filled with all the knowledge of God God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so he's continuing to explain and teach and work out the implications the meaning of of what he has prayed for. And so it's very instructive for us to see, not only as teachers, someone here are teachers, but especially just as people of God, and especially as men of God, because men are given the responsibility to be leading their families, leading the church. That prayer is an essential issue, but prayer apart from instruction, is not God's way. And so for what Paul prays, he then instructs so that what he prays for the church can become a reality to the church because he has joined together in his prayer and in his instruction the total will of God for the working of the ministry of the church by the Holy Spirit. So let's be men and women who, when we pray, we are ready to go beyond our prayer and begin, if you would, to put a structure, an implementation into the hearts and the lives of those for whom we are praying. And the Lord may call you to do that. He may not call you to do that. But at least let's be willing and ready to do it. And so... We continue this morning, and Paul says, him we proclaim. Now, the word him is a pronoun. You remember pronouns. He, his, him, me, I. Those are words that stand for a noun that has been either understood or has been specified in a previous place. So him obviously relates to Christ. So what is the essence of this mystery? Christ in you. And so Paul says, how is this mystery being promulgated? How is it being made known? And Paul says, begins here, he says, him we proclaim. Christ is the subject of the word of God that Paul is making known. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. So Christ is the subject of the word of God. He is the reason and the substance. He is the purpose. He is the goal of this word of God. From the very beginning words of Genesis, in the beginning, to the very end of Genesis, I'm sorry, Revelation 22, this entire word of God, this Bible, these scriptures, speak about one person. For instance, in the beginning, how do we know that speaks about Jesus? Because what does Jesus say? I am the beginning and the end. He proclaims himself that way. 
And so when we see these words in the beginning, let's not just see them as, hey, something's happening, something's getting going here. But this is an announcement by the God of glory that Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, is the entire subject of this word, proclaiming himself through these words in the beginning, not only to announce that all things that are existing because of what he has done, but that he himself is the reason for all things existing and all things continuing for the purpose of God to honor his Son as we are joined to him by the Spirit. And so him we proclaim. Make sure that as we share the gospel, we are proclaiming Christ. Let's make sure that as we share the gospel, we are not emphasizing and majoring on us of who we are and what has happened in our lives, although sharing the gospel needs to include that. But as we share ourselves, our background, as we share what is going on and where we're going and what we're doing, that we make sure that Christ is the subject and the reason we are sharing. Him we proclaim. Paul is not here to talk about politics. He isn't here to talk about financial security. Paul is here, as we all should be, proclaiming Christ. And we have to be very careful today, especially in this world, in this Western country of America, that we don't become Christians for whom politics and finances and all of these issues begin to compete with Christ. We share Christ. Amen? We have to be very careful about this as we talk about our elected officials and whom we like and whom we don't like and what they're doing and what they should do. I have to be careful of that. We proclaim Christ. So the question this morning is, does our, do our lives proclaim Christ? Let's be asking God regularly, Father, how am I doing in proclaiming your son? God's will for Paul and every disciple is very specific. Make Christ known through a life of gospel ministry. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28? Making disciples, making disciples. You see, this is the goal for which Paul suffered. This is the reason for Paul's sufferings. He isn't suffering because he is doing other things. He is suffering specifically as a result of doing what Jesus mandated for all of us to do, and that is to be making disciples. And in this, what Paul is, has done, has learned is this, that everything else in my life, proclaiming Christ for the purpose of making disciples, everything else in my life compared to proclaiming Christ and making disciples is rubbish. Everything else is rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Remember, he said that in Philippians chapter 3. Everything else is rubbish. So let's make the priority and pursue God in this. Father, regularly I want my life by the power of your Spirit to be consistently and compellingly proclaiming Christ. Let's ask God regularly for this. And when he begins to do it, Let's cooperate with him rather than wrestle against him. And so, proclaiming Christ. Well, how are we going to do this? Well, look at the next statement. 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now, you see, we wouldn't have begun with warning. We wouldn't have begun with that word. Isn't it interesting that Paul begins with this word, warning everyone? You see, he begins to explain how Christ is to be proclaimed with a warning. You see, he's emphasizing the seriousness of the message. Paul isn't a man who said, hey, just go out and teach. Just go out and preach. Just go out and share Jesus. He wants us to know that what we're doing in the economy of God and to God and for God is the most serious message, the most serious work we can do. And in fact, the probability is that many of us are much more serious about life issues in the natural, about our health, about our finances, about how well we work, about whether we go to work on time, about whether we do homework, about our exercising. We're more serious about this than we are about the gospel. And that's the opposite. See, Paul met a man who changed his life. And that man not only changed Paul's direction in life, but he changed the emphasis and the foundation and the purpose for Paul's living. So he says, everything else is rubbish. Anything in my life that in any way competes with proclaiming him, he said, anything has to go because I can't allow any obstacle to be in my way. You see, the gospel message is a life and death message. You see, we just think of the gospel as a life message, but it's both. It gives life to those who believe, and it reveals death to those who do not. Do you remember the great words of John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, what? Would have what? <clears throat> would not perish, but what? Have what? Eternal life. But what about verse 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so there is then more teaching beyond that because Jesus says, you know, if you've not believed in me, you are condemned. And so as we minister the gospel, God is using us in one of two ways. He's using us to bring life to those whom he has foreknown. Now, we may not know who they are, but God knows who they are. So we don't have to worry. I wonder if Pat's going to be saved. I don't need to be interested in that, Pat. All I need to be interested in is this. I'm going to share the gospel with you and leave whether you're going to be saved to God because that's his job. So I'm not going to be preoccupied with other issues. The issue is this, proclaiming Christ, not trying to figure out, is he going to be saved? Is he not going to be saved? I wonder, those are not my issues. That's God's issues. And so as we proclaim Christ, we are proclaiming the news of eternal life. Amen? But at the same time, we are proclaiming the news of condemnation to those who are not foreknown, to those who will reject the gospel. We're doing both. And so we have to be warned. We have to be ready for this. So Paul says, I want to warn you about something. This message is the dynamite of God. 
It is dunimos, remember? The power of God. It's dunimos because it's going to explode the old hard heart of unbelievers and give them a new heart of flesh for those whom God is saving through this word. But it is also going to explode as antagonism and opposition to those who are not being saved. So how many of us have experienced as we have, as best we understood, carefully and lovingly shared the gospel of God's saving power in the death and resurrection of Jesus, how many of us have experienced the explosive power of salvation in people? But how many of us have also exp uh, experienced the explosive power of opposition? So let's make sure we see what the gospel is. So Paul begins with a warning. I want to warn you. What you have in your hand is dynamite. And it's going to go one way or the other every time you share it. Therefore, we are to be warned and be careful. Remember, Jesus said how you listen in Luke 8, 18. He says, be careful. The gospel is the only message that has eternal consequences. There's nothing else we do in life that has eternal consequences except as we proclaim him to a dark and dying world. Nothing else goes with us into eternity except this message, this messenger, this work of God, Jesus Christ himself. So he warns. Then he says, warning and teaching everyone. There's only one way to properly and accurately proclaim Christ to the church, and that is how? By teaching them the word of God. By teaching them the word of God. Now, it was a real struggle to go back into 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where he talked about teaching, reproof, correction, and training. But I didn't, didn't want to do that, but I do want to say this, teaching. The most fundamental method that God gives to the church in proclaiming Christ is first as we live and proclaim the gospel evangelistically as God is using us as his instruments of salvation so people can be saved. Amen? But once people are saved, the evangelistic work is over. Now it begins to become the feeding work. Once a lady has had birth and given birth to her child, no longer is her mind on giving birth. The birth has happened. Now her total preoccupation is on the nourishment and maturity, the feeding of this child. Teaching is God's only way of feeding his people, the Word of God. Teaching is the activity of the Holy Spirit that reorders, readjusts, corrects any and all faulty or unbiblical concepts or thoughts or knowledge. So I want you to see that teaching is the giving forth of the Word of God in knowledge and understanding. And the Holy Spirit takes that and he begins to reorder our out-of-order thoughts and concepts and knowledge and understanding. 
There is no other way to mature in Christ. Now, most of the people in this room are men. How many of the men in this room have families? How many of you have families? So most of us do. There are a couple of single guys in here and a couple of guys who don't have a family yet who are married. Brothers, we are given the specific direction and anointing and appointing of God to be the men in our household who are, if you would, the superintendent of education. That doesn't mean that we have to do all the teaching personally, but that we are ones who are given by God the responsibility to oversee the instruction of the Word of God to our wives and to our families. So teaching is the primary way that God ministers to the church and takes our thoughts, our concepts, our knowledge, our background stuff, all of that, and he takes it by the Spirit and applies the truth and the correction and the adjustment of his word to what we thought, what we understood, the way we were, and begins to use his word to begin to make us right, if you would, in our thinking and understanding. This is what Paul is saying to us. We teach everyone the word of God. How many of us make a priority or maybe did make a priority now that your children may be grown to make sure they were learning and doing well in school? We made that a priority. I suppose my biggest concern or one of the biggest concerns that I have, at least in this church, is this. I am worried that too many are not making this the priority they need to make. I know what they say, and this is my opinion, so forgive me. Well, don't forgive me. This is my opinion. We say this. Well, we can learn the word over here, there, and yonder. Okay. And I will say we learn the word in assembled instruction together. That doesn't mean there can't be any other way. In school, how many of you would have allowed your children to say, look, Dad, I can learn the word on my own. I don't need to go to class. I can do it on my own. How many daddies would say, yes, that's okay? Now, does that mean that they can never learn anything except in the classroom? Does that, what's that mean? No. But how many of you know that the basic learning activity, the basic activity of instruction and understanding is in the classroom? How many of us know that? Yes. Yes. That's where I fall out. I fall out on this side, that this activity that we do, for instance, every Sunday morning, is of primary significance to the health of the church. And I want to encourage you and I want to thank you for being here regularly to be receiving from the Holy Spirit. So as we teach, what we're doing is making sure by the power of the Spirit as he uses the teaching of his word, to anchor the church into the rock of ages. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, hey, if your house is built on anything else other than my word, it is built on shifting sand, and it won't stand. 
But when the winds and the waves of life come against your house, and if you are built on the rock, you are going to weather the storm. Oh, yeah, yeah, there may be some windows broken and some roofing material blown off and, you know, some damage here and there. But your house is going to weather the storm. Why? Because you have been instructed in the Word of God and because your life is pulsating and pumping the Word of God through your spiritual veins in your spiritual mind. Well, how will we teach? Well, we teach with all wisdom. We don't teach with the wisdom of man. We don't teach with the opinions of a teacher, although if we do have opinions, I will at least, and I think the other guys will say, my opinion. But hopefully, again, Paul says, I, not I, but, the, you know, he says, but I'm giving you this, but I know the Lord is with me in this. Hopefully, all of our opinions, and this is for all of us in here, as we give opinions in issues of life, Hopefully, those opinions are well-informed and based on and are the result of what we know of the Word of God. If you are asked for an opinion in life and you're not sure what the Word of God says, do what I have had to do a whole lot of times. I don't know, but I'll try to find out for you. It is better for you to look stupid than say something wrong and send someone down the wrong path. Let's be very careful about this. We teach in the wisdom of God. As we are being taught the Word of God, we then proclaim the Word of God. If we haven't been taught the Word, if we're not reading it regularly, if the Word of God is not becoming part of our spiritual being more and more, regulating us and informing us and empowering us, how in the world are we going to give forth spiritual wisdom to others? So we teach in all wisdom. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach and teach to save those who believe. What does that mean? That means that you can go to the Library of Congress. Everybody knows what the Library of Congress means. They have a few books in there, a couple of books, just a couple. And you can take every book that is in there and the collected wisdom of every book there and every book that has ever been written and every thought of man that has ever been conjured up. And none of it will begin to do anything in revelation about who God is in himself. You'll never hear and find out about God through the wisdom of the world. It just won't happen. There is only one source for godly revelation and understanding, and that is through the teaching and the learning of the Word of God. Isn't this narrow? Isn't it narrow? But when the doctor says to you, there's only one way for you to be well, and this is what you have to do, I doubt whether many of us would say, Doctor, you are a narrow-minded bigot. I can do it any way I want to because I think, I think, I believe there are other ways. Go ahead and do it. And on your tombstone, they'll put, I did it my way. I did it my way. 
I don't believe that man is enjoying his way right now. Now, why teach with wisdom? Why teach with spiritual, godly, Holy Spirit-led and inspired and infused wisdom? Why do that? And by the way, what is the Holy Spirit hopefully telling us today? This is the way we are to be living and relating to one another in the church and into our loved ones and friends and relatives and, and everybody out there in the world. This is the way we are to be doing it. He says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Your word may be complete. Your word may say perfect. It's just the maturity issue. The goal of all gospel teaching is that everyone in the church is mature in Christ, that we become those people whom God has called us to be through our salvation. God's will is not that we just be saved. Well, I got amen. Thank God I got amen. There's not a normal parent on the earth who doesn't care about the development of his or her new child. What does the parent's primary passion for this child, what would it be? That my boy, my girl grow up to be successful in life. That he does well, that she does well. That's what we want. We want our children to grow up and to mature. And that's God's word for, will for us. So how do we do it? Through the instruction of the word of God. Mature, what does that mean? It means the transformation of our mental and moral character into the image of God's son. So it is another word of saying this is the work of God in transforming us. Remember, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind in Romans 12 too, into the very image being conformed to the image of God's Son in Romans 8, 29. This is what it means to be mature, so that our lives more and more are being controlled by and are being reflective of the very character of God, the very person of Christ by His Spirit. That's God's purpose. You see, this is God's original purpose for humanity. Remember, he wanted Adam and Eve to be according, and the rest of the children of Adam and Eve to be according to his image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness in Genesis 1.26. And he gave Adam instruction on how that is to be done. And the principal instruction in Genesis 2.15 is that this path of maturity is the path of knowing and obeying God's will. We cannot mature in Christ without, again, I go back to the same issue. Why? Because it is the only issue that God gives to us. It is our knowledge of, understanding of, and obedience to his word. That's how we are matured. There is no maturity in Christ apart from this. You see, just as a farmer plants and cultivates for a mature fruit, Christ has planted and cultivated us to be mature believers. Remember John 15, 8, what does Jesus say? In this, this is the way that my Father is glorified. How many of us want to glorify God? We want to always glorify God. We want to worship God. We want to make sure that everyone sees that God is great in our lives. This is the way to do what Jesus said, that you bear much fruit. For in this is my Father glorified, that you bear fruit. Not just scrawny little old things hanging on a tree, but ripe, good, juicy, productive, beautiful fruit. And we are the planting of the Lord. 
And this is what God wants for our lives. You see, if our minds and our direction in life are not set in this goal, we are missing what God wants. We are missing what God wants. So we need to make sure that as we listen to all this, we're asking the Lord, Father, is this happening in me? And to the place that it is not, please make adjustments, mid-course adjustments. I need to be adjusted in mid-course regularly. So let us be making those, asking God to make those mid-course adjustments. Verse 29, for this I toil, this, this whole issue of proclaiming Christ, warning, teaching, in all wisdom, that everyone may be mature. He says, I, I toil for this purpose, struggling with all of God's energy that he, may pow- that he powerfully works within me. See, Paul characterizes his ministry as a struggle, as a struggle. His is a joyful struggle, however, because he recognized that he is struggling with the energy of the Spirit who powerfully wor- works within him. Now, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have in verse 1. He continues this. For you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. And so this just continues this issue of struggling. Now this is the third time that Paul has talked about sufferings and strugglings. So what is he talking about? What strugglings? Well, this morning, what is the source of his strugglings? This morning, let me just make a couple of comments about that. And next week, we'll talk about... um, why he has emphasized his strugglings, because he does it three times. By the time we get to verse 1 of chapter 2, this is the third time he's talking about his strugglings. And if I'm telling you, man, I'm struggling to do this, and I'm toiling, and I'm working hard, and I'm suffering, some of you are going to think, what's wrong with the man? Why does he keep telling us those things? Well, Paul has a very specific reason why he's doing that to this church. But first of all, what is the source of his strugglings? You see, when we look at the record of Paul's ministry, we see that his opponents are from his own countrymen and from the Gentiles. Remember, those are the opponents. But in both cases, and for very different reasons, Paul is the object of their ire and their desire to kill him. That's what's happening. He's struggling against these oppositions of these, this opposition of these people. But is that the real source? And then Paul's also struggling against his own flesh in doing things. There's a struggle internally against, I'm too tired to get up and go to school of the Word. I'm just tired. Or it's too difficult for me to to be doing good to this person. I'm tired of this relationship. It's too hard for me. I'm going to abandon it. Whatever it is. So there's a struggle in our flesh against the work of the Holy Spirit. There is that struggle. But Paul, I think, specifically more in this particular passage is talking about that external struggle, the struggle that is coming against him as he proclaims the gospel. So he is being opposed by the Jewish leaders, and then he's also being opposed by the Gentiles. Now, we've seen this in the history of Acts. Remember, there's many issues here, and there are many uh, encounters there that give us this. But what is the real issue? What is the real source of the opposition? The real source. Well, we're given the insight to the real source in several passages. In several passages. So, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, what does Paul say? He says, though we walk in the what? 
flesh, although we were living normal, natural lives, he says, we're struggling not, this is a spiritual warfare. Though we walk in the flesh, our warfare is not according to the flesh, but it's what? It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. And we have been given divinely empowered ability to pull down the strongholds. The strongholds of whom? Of Satan. And how do we pull down these strongholds? How are we able to overcome temptation and attacks and difficulties and all of this opposition of Satan? Well, he tells you in verse 6, he says, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish any and all disobedience. How are we going to take thoughts captive? How are we going to win the battle? How are we going to be able to overcome all of this opposition? How are we going to be able to be used in ways that minister this truth to our families? How are we going to be able to help our children to be guarded against the enemy? How are we going to be watching and, and making sure our families are strengthened against this malevolent opponent? How? He says we have to start by taking our own thoughts captive. We have to begin to think God's thoughts after him and begin to do his deeds with him. Amen? But how do we do that? By learning his word, by being taught the word of God. We've already talked about that. You see, the essential issue and uh, activity here is the word of God. You can't take every thought captive if you don't know what thoughts to take captive and how to take them captive with God's thoughts. You can only take ungodly thoughts captive as you understand that's ungodly, and you can only take a thought uh, captive if you know the godly issue and overcome the ungodly. And how do you know what's ungodly? The Word of God. How do you know what's godly? The Word of God. And how is this thing uh, done? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. Who's the opposition? Satan is the opposition. Now, I, I know that this is old-time religion. <clears throat> and I realize that the world has become much more sophisticated and that science has now proven there is no Satan. There are no spiritual beings, although there's some real quacky people out there thinking they're seeing ghosts and spirits. And that this issue of God and all of that is not, no longer man has finally come to the place of we have finally learned this is all superstition. If it helps you, you believe it, but it's not really true. We know that matter has come out of nothing some kind of way by itself and there was a bang somewhere. And we're all going places. We don't know where we're going. We don't know how we're going to get there and what we're going to do and who we are. And after we're dead, nothing. We, we, we've finally graduated out of the old superstitions, aren't you glad? One of the most subtle deceptions of all is that Satan hides his identity from the church. You see, you and I are struggling against spiritual forces of wickedness. Those thoughts that come into your mind all of a sudden. How many of us have just been minding our own business, going down life's road, and all of a sudden a thought of sin or something just pops in? Have you ever had that? The word thought is the word for dialogue. Somebody shot an arrow into your mind. 
What are you talking about, an arrow? Where do I see that? Ephesians 6, 16. Take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts or flaming missiles or arrows of the enemy. The shield of faith in what? The faith in Jesus Christ. And how can I do that? Because I know him and I understand him and I know how to take it up and I, and I can identify the flaming arrows as they come and I can know what to do to distinguish him because I have been instructed in his word. There's an enemy there. So don't receive these as my thoughts. This is considerations from an enemy. So what do you do with these thoughts? In Jesus' name, I will not think that. In Jesus' name, I will think according to the word of God. I will not do it. You literally have to take possession of these darts Pick up your shield of faith and let them hit the shield of faith and be extinguished as you say, I will not do it in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. I will not be overcome by fear, by frustration, by anger, by resentment, by relational difficulties. I will not think uh, impure thoughts. I will not be greedy. I will not be. I will not do that. I will take my thoughts under control because I am a man. I am a woman of God and I have the Holy Spirit in me and I know the word of God well enough and I'm just going to do what God says to do, right? See, we do not have to be beaten down. Satan is the enemy. He's the God of this world. He's the one, you remember, who has been hurled out of heaven and he is the one that Paul's, um, Peter says what? In 1 Peter 5, 8. Be what? Sober-minded. Be aware. There's an adversary. Now, that word adversary in the Hebrew is what word? Satan, S-A-T-A-N. The Hebrew word adversary is S-A-T-A-N, Satan. Isn't that interesting? And he becomes personified in the New Testament, a couple of places in the Old, but really personified in the New when Jesus comes. There is an enemy, friends. The enemy is not your mama. It's not your wife, not your husband. It's not your children. It's not the pastors. The enemy is the enemy of Satan. And he uses the weaknesses of our flesh, the culture of this world, to lure us into the quicksand of compromise. And unless you take the hand of God, you will sink in the sand of Satan. So you have a decision every time we come up against these things. Will I submit to the sand or will I take the hand? Is it going to be the sand or is it going to be the hand? How do you know the hand? Because it says on the hand, the word of God, the word of God. If your children don't know this, they're going to sink. If you don't know this, you're going to sink. Let us know the word of God and let us be taking the hand to get out of the sand. See, Paul understands that as an apostle of the gospel, he is on the front line of the defense of the church against the subtle and overt attacks of the enemy. But he also knows this, that all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. He knows that this is not only him being attacked, but he is also part of of a much larger attack against the church of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for being here this morning. 
it's interesting that as I prepared for the sermon this morning, I started that preparation last week. I don't mean I prepared it this morning. That the Lord gave me very much this message for the church this morning. So if you would, bear with me, but be praying that God, what word do I want? Reveals and makes very clear to this church we're in dangerous times. Katrina is coming, and we need to be ready. Thank you so much. 